All right, if you have your worship folder there, flip over to the next page as we come to our passage this morning. I, uh, before we do that, I, I want to just say a real brief word about the chairs. As you'll notice, we're set up sideways. I just uh, suspect some of you may be curious about, so what are you going to do? Um, and, and the short story is, uh, we feel like as, as the leadership, we, we've, we've had it set up both ways, lengthwise and sideways, and we feel like we've, we've kind of got enough data uh, to, to work with. And so we're, we're going to continue to leave it set up the old way, like this, um, until we continue to work through, okay, uh, if we want to set up lengthwise permanently, uh, then we'll get back to you about that. But for the foreseeable future, we're going to continue to set up this way. And um, we've got 100 new chairs coming, I think, this next week. That'll take the place of uh, the plastic chairs over here, and so we're going to figure out how to try to integrate those in. And um, also just want to let you know that uh, we're working on the lights. Uh, we're having a little difficulty getting the electrician to, to come and, and replace them. So uh, if it's a bit dim for you, we apologize, but um, please be patient with us in due time. Hopefully they will, uh, it'll be like the sun outside. Um, all right, let's uh, jump back in here to our, our series here in Genesis. We are, this year and into next year, we are going to continue to work our way through the book of Genesis and the book of Romans, and we're using them as conversation partners to help us to see how the whole Bible leads us to Jesus and how it really is one big story. In this book, the book of Genesis, it's the first book of Moses that he wrote to God's people on their way to the promised land. After they've been in Egypt for over 400 years in slavery, this is the first book that they get to read from God through Moses as they're on their way to the promised land. And so far, we've looked at the creation story through the, the flood narrative and the story of Noah. And we've looked at Abraham's story. And now we are looking at Isaac's story. And after we get through the flood narrative, the whole book of Genesis really breaks down into Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And we're in the Isaac bit right now. And I always like to remind us each week about this that, you know, it's easy to sort of when we open up the Old Testament to kind of feel like we're moving away from the good news of Christianity. And I always want to remind you that's really not how the Bible speaks. Paul himself says in the book of Galatians that God preached beforehand the gospel to Abraham. And then he quotes from Genesis chapter 12. And so when, it, when we look at how the whole Bible speaks about itself, it actually thinks of the Old Testament as a good news book, and specifically where we are right now in Genesis. And it's a good news book that leads us to Jesus. And so... I always want to begin with that because that's especially important when we come to a chapter like Genesis 27, and we get a real in-depth, up-close look at Isaac's family, and it's a mess. And so I want to, I want to read from Genesis 27 this morning, and I, it's a, a long story, uh, begins at the end of, end of 26 and goes into actually 28, and so I want to read enough of 27 to kind of help you get inside the story a little bit, and, and, then, and then we're going to unpack it some. So 
Let's listen as, as God tells us uh, what he has for us this morning. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called, his, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And Esau answered, Here I am. And Isaac said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul might bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau <coughs> went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them. And brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. So Jacob went into his father and said, My father, and Isaac said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, When Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate, all, ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, here we have an up-close, intimate window in to Isaac's family. And we've already seen last week that the whole point of chapter 26 was that God's promise of blessing to Abraham was also for Isaac. And we saw that this promise of God to bless Isaac was the glue that held his life together because we also saw that Isaac was a man who's mixed with fear and faith. 
And here we get a very intimate picture of the realities of his family and the dynamics at work between him and his wife Rebecca and his oldest son Esau and his younger son Jacob. And it's a dark picture. This is a family that is a mess. And so what I want to do this morning is give you two points. So we're going to, first, we're going to look at the family dynamics that we see here in Isaac's family. And then second, the God who brings life out of death. So first, family dynamics. And second, the God who brings life out of death. So first, let's look at this idea here of these family dynamics that we see. And as we work through this, you're likely going to, well, I think you may have this experience. I had this experience. Sometimes the Bible is almost too realistic for, for my comfort. It begins to pry into my life through these stories and these people in ways that are almost too realistic. But what I want you to understand is that the Bible is realistic for a reason. Because it is for people who are living real lives. In other words, Christianity and the scriptures do not gloss over the faults and the shortcomings of the people about which it speaks. Because we need a word from God that doesn't gloss over the weaknesses and shortcomings of our lives. So when we come to Isaac's family, what do we see here? Well, we have a mom and a dad, and we've got two boys. And Isaac is getting old to the point where he can't see. And as was customary, it was time for him to formally and officially bless the oldest son to pass on the family inheritance and blessing and promises that God has made to the next generation. And so Isaac, in the early verses we looked at, he calls his son Esau to come and he says, I want you to prepare a great meal for me so that we can be together and I want to bless you. But there's a problem right away. Back in Genesis chapter 25, God had said to Rachel, he had made a promise to her and to Isaac that the older son would serve the younger son. And while the narrator doesn't say it explicitly here, the story makes explicit that Isaac is subverting what God has already said. He's not listening to what God had already said. He wants his family to unfold and live generation after generation the way that he would like for it to, not in the way in which God has said it will. And so at the very beginning here, what we see happening in this chapter, and I think perhaps uncomfortable ways, is what God has already said, that the older will serve the younger, is going to happen, but through the mess of this family. 
And so while Isaac is telling Esau to go and hunt this game and make this meal so that he can bless him, Rebecca overhears these instructions. And she hatches this plan to get Isaac's blessing that he wants to give to Esau and to get it so that Jacob will be blessed. And in fact, her plan works. Isaac ends up blessing Jacob. And yet, as we're going to see, even though her plan works, it leads to and deepens the family divides and tensions that we read about here. So when we step back, what do we see in this family for a minute? This mom and this dad and these two boys. First, look at Isaac. Real briefly, here is a dad who's largely passive. Almost every commentator describes Isaac as a relatively um, benign, passive, inactive individual in this story. We have a passive dad, a passive husband, who has, as I've said, he's failed to accept God's purpose for his sons. In fact, he's, he's a man who the narrator indicates several times he's driven more by his passions than God's promises. As indicated by the repeated phrase, maybe you caught it, this phrase that when he says, I want you to make food for me such as I love. That phrase, food such as I love, gets repeated several times. And several commentators note that that's, a, that's an indicator of this is a man guided more by his passions than God's promises. So here you've got Isaac, but then you've got Rachel. Isaac's wife and the mom of these two boys who is cunningly undermining her husband's plans and she successfully deceives him. And then you've got, if you look at Isaac and Rachel together, what kind of marriage do we have here? We have a husband and a wife who barely speak to one another in this story. They are at odds. In fact, the narrator indicates their opposition in verse 5 when he writes, Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And then in verse 6, Rebekah said to her son Jacob. Here we have a husband and a wife and a mom and a dad who are in opposition about the destiny of their family. And it comes out in favoritism towards their sons. And then we look at Esau who is an elder son, who we've already learned in, in chapter 25, who despises his birthright, which is essentially God's promises to him. But notice, despite his, his despising and indifference to that birthright, here he expects his father's blessing. Then you look at Jacob who is a younger son who cheats his brother out of what ordinarily would belong to him, not once but twice. And then he lies to his father to his face repeatedly. We didn't read this section, but when Jacob actually goes to Isaac with all this food, Isaac actually tests who he really is three or four different times. And the narrator tries to show us how many times Isaac tries to prove that Jacob really is Esau by touching Jacob, by smelling the food, 
by listening to his voice, by asking him point blank, are you really my son? And every single time, Jacob lies to him, to his face. And then what if you take Esau and Jacob here? Here you've got these two brothers who are vying for the approval and the blessing of their parents. The result of which is the younger gets the better of the older and the older wants to kill the younger. So what do we have here? This is a family with dynamics that I venture to guess would rival and surpass all of ours. This is a disaster. This is a marriage that is in uh, ruins. These are siblings that don't love each other. This is a family full of favoritism and scheming and manipulation and indifference. So here's my question. What about your family this morning? Can you see your family, whether your nuclear family here this morning or your larger extended family, can you see it in this story? Perhaps you're here this morning and uh, you're a dad who is passive. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're a mom and you find yourself scheming. Uh, Perhaps you're here this morning and you're a brother or you're a sister and you find your siblings obstacles to your plan for your life, whether it be hoping to play Xbox today or whether it be my brothers or my sisters just always seem like they get in the way of what I would like to do. Perhaps this morning your marriage is terrible and you don't know what to do. Perhaps your kids don't get along. Uh, Perhaps you feel like that you and your spouse are pulling in opposite directions. Maybe you're bewildered and confused and scared because your children don't seem responsive or sensitive to God's promises and his intentions for their lives. Maybe you feel like in in your marriage, in your family, there is just this perennial breakdown of trust. There's competition and rivalry. Maybe there's even favoritism. Maybe you feel this sense of revenge over ways in which you or others in your family have mistreated one another. Or maybe you fear the long-term consequences of how your children talk to one another or how you have spoken to your brothers or sisters or your parents have spoken to you and you don't know what to do. Now, I hope you're able to get inside this story a little bit. Because this is a story about a family to whom God has made promises. Through whom he has promised to bless the nations. And this is their situation. This is what they're like. 
This is a nosedive of a family. And the question is, how on earth can God pull this nosedive out? Now I want to give you, here are three, I think, common proposals to family dynamics like this. The first one came to mind, I was talking with a friend this week, and, and as we were talking, we both remembered uh, Jimmy Valvano. Some of you may not know who that is. He was a NC State, North Carolina State basketball coach back in the 80s. Very just energetic, just passionate guy. Passionate basketball coach. Led his team to win the national championship, and he was diagnosed with cancer. And now there's this thing called the V Foundation. And at the very end of his life, I think really within days of his death, he was speaking publicly. And towards the end of his talk, the refrain of his story and what he was wanting to communicate to people is to never give up. Never give up. And, you know, if you've ever watched him speak in his last days as he's battling cancer, it is moving. And that never give up is an incredibly powerful sentiment. And, and I'm saying that in some ways that's true, but it's not enough. Because if you're here this morning and what you tell yourself as a sibling, as a brother or a sister, or as a mom or a dad or husband or a wife, just never give up. Here's the problem. Take Jimmy Vilvano, for example. Never get, give up doesn't work when day by day you are losing to cancer. And eventually it takes your life. Never give up will not see you through what you're facing. You need something more than a slogan. The second way we tend to maybe handle these sorts of things is we might think this, we might think, well, it's got to get better because it just can't get any worse. You know, I've said this to myself in, in dramatic ways and less dramatic ways. Like, well, you know, um, this is a season. This too shall, ba- shall pass. It's got to get better because it just can't get any worse. And here's what's wrong with that. That does not work. And the reason it doesn't work is because it all too quickly ignores the real hurt and the real suffering that you cannot explain away. And it is, it is corrosive to your soul to explain it away. The third way that we may tend to handle these kinds of family dynamics is we might look at someone else's family and we might say to ourselves, well, or to one another, at least your situation is, isn't as bad as what they're going through. And here's why that doesn't work. When you respond to weaknesses and failings and hardship and suffering in your life by comparing it to someone else's situation that is worse than yours, do you know what you do? What you do is you simply breed shame and guilt in your own life. Because you will inevitably feel like, well, if 
my situation isn't as bad as theirs, why am I having such a hard time? And you won't ever really ask that question and go to Jesus with it because you'll always explain it away and think, well, I should be able to deal with this because it's not as bad as theirs. And I'm telling you, that is a lie that is straight from the pit of hell. Now, how then can you find hope and help in the midst of the reality of your family dynamics? If your family feels like a mess, if in some ways you feel like it's analogous to this chapter, Isaac's family, how is it possible or is it possible to get your head above the clouds? And that brings us to the God who brings life out of death. You see, if we only look at Genesis chapter 27, it is a dark and hopeless story of a family that is falling apart. There is not much good in this story. And in fact, it's a story that has very real consequences that follow from the choices and the decisions and the behaviors and the hopes and the expectations of this family. For example, you know, Rebecca loses contact with both of her sons. She never sees them again. And do you know, Isaac lives out the rest of his life in insignificance in the story. He becomes a non-factor. And yet he is Abraham's son through whom God promised to bless the nations Esau becomes an entrenched man of revenge and hatred and murder, like Cain to Abel. And Jacob is forced to flee and endures, ironically, years of deception and manipulation at the hands of his mother's brother, his uncle, his uncle Laban. Now, now maybe you feel like this morning that your family is like Genesis chapter 27 in this sense. That that's all there is. That that's all that you can see. That that's all you're able to make sense of. And here's what I want you to see and to hear me say. Genesis 27 and this family and even your family, it's located within a larger story that has not finished yet. And as we're going to see, as we move through this story of Isaac and his family, we're going to come to a moment where we see Esau and Jacob restored and reconciled. We're going to see Jacob say words of repentance before God that are profoundly beautiful. We're going to see a brother, two brothers who were at complete odds embrace. And eventually we're actually going to see Isaac and Jacob reunited. So what do we need? We need to be pulled out of our story into a bigger story. And I I want to give you an example of this. I have a pastor friend of mine who... um, 
was doing college ministry in Southern California, and he recently transitioned to doing a church plant. And he's my age, maybe a couple, couple years younger. He's married. I think he has three or four kids. And two and a half years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer. And he recently died two or three weeks ago after a vigorous fight against cancer. And, you know, I, I haven't had cancer But I just imagine two and a half years of darkness, of feeling like I'm losing. And how on earth do you get, how do you live in that? How do you persevere in that? And one of my friends who who knows him better than I said that towards the end of his life, towards the end of his his days, he, he said often in the hospital, he would say, Let me hear more of God's words, not my own. A voice and a story much bigger than myself. Words like Jesus said at the end of Matthew 28, where Jesus says, All power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I will be with you to the very end. Here was a friend dying of cancer, and what he wanted to hear was that Jesus was in control. That Jesus is more powerful than this disease that's killing him. And that Jesus was with him and will be with him forever. And I, as I thought about this, and I think about my family, and I think about you and your families. I couldn't help but remember one of my favorite kids' books, Going on a Bear Hunt. Some of you might know of it. And it has the refrain in the story as, as these kids journey through the forest going on this bear hunt, they encounter certain obstacles along the way. And the refrain is, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You have to go through it. And what I'm trying to tell you this morning, when we talk about the God who brings life out of death, there is no way to go through your life other than to go through it. But what I really want you to hear is to go through it through Jesus. You cannot go over your life. You can't go under it. You can't do an end run. You have to go through it. But the good news of this story is that you go through it with Jesus. So, how can Jesus and his story and this big story that God has and the gospel bring hope into your family? Because looking at Genesis 27, we should ask the question, what possible good can come from this? And perhaps you have that question sometimes too. What possible good can come from my family because it looks pretty bad right now. And I want you to look at the story of Jesus with me. And especially if you've grown up in the South and you've grown up around Christianity, I want to push you to move beyond the familiar. I want you to stop and I want you to think with me for a moment about what happens in Jesus' life as he is here on earth, as the Bible reveals it to us, and as it unfolds. And what happens is, the more 
Jesus makes his way through his life and his public ministry, the more and more people misunderstand him. The more of an enigma he becomes, the more people become offended at him and disgusted at him, the more people become confused by him, the more people he thought he could trust and were with him actually leave him and betray him despite their overtures of we won't ever leave you even if it kills us to the point where Jesus is unjustly tried it's a hung jury and he is sentenced to die a shameful gruesome death outside the city that only criminals die And here's the question. Don't be too quick to run past this and miss it. What possible good could come from that? No one in the story of the Gospels saw any good coming from this. His disciples fled. They were terrified. And in fact, the only people who began to move towards Jesus were the women who were following him, but They were only doing that just out out of honor and love for him because they wanted to bury him in honor and respect. This is a story that looks like nothing good can come out of. And here's my question. Take the slogan, never give up. What good is that to this story of Jesus? He was crucified. Or it's got to get better because it can't get any worse. Well... How how does that fit into this story of suffering and death and humiliation? Or at least it's not as bad as that situation. How about that one? Jesus on the cross says to the two guys next to him, well, you know, at least it's not bad as what? That doesn't get any worse than that. And here's the thing I want you to see about this. The only thing that changes the story of Jesus is the resurrection. A God who brings life out of death. That is your only hope and confidence in your family right now today. It's not you. It's not your parenting. It's not the way that you are brought up. It's not that your kids get along. It's not that they are professing faith right now or they are not professing faith right now it's not that you're in the right church it is that Jesus was raised from the dead because death could not contain him what that means is if you are connected to Jesus death cannot reign in your life it means that death And all of its variations, which are on display in this chapter 27, in a family, cannot win the day. And I wouldn't even begin to pretend to tell you that after this sermon or after being here, everything is going to be fine in your family. I can't promise you that. But what I can promise you is that we are here this morning to talk about a God who can undo death. So what do you do with this story? First of all, I want you to realize that the Bible is full of families like yours. 
The Bible's full of families like yours because it's written for people like you and me. And second, you need to cultivate a spiritual skill that is itself a gift. And it's the spiritual skill of living your life and navigating your family dynamics through the story of Jesus. How do you get outside of your chapter 27? You get outside of that chapter 27 by realizing that your life is part of what God is doing. He has written your life into his big story. That's what it means to be a Christian. So whatever you find yourself this morning, I want you to think about what you most need this morning. You need God's light to shine into your darkness. And what that means is that that light has to be a person who knows your darkness. That's what the story of Jesus brings into your life, into your family this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this story. Thank you for the ways in which your word invites us in to to, to look at our own lives in light of what you have said. And, And we pray, Father, that whatever we find in our own circumstances and families this morning, Father, we pray that you would help us to know that and to see that uh, and to believe that you are a God who brings life out of death. And we ask for your glory to the praise of your name and for our good that you would help us to to experience and taste (coughs) that life out of death even today. And that you would give us the hope and the faith to look forward to that great day when life will swallow up everything that is wrong and it will be no more and the old things will have passed away and the new things will have come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.